0: Please join me now and turn in your Bibles to John chapter twenty the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. We will direct our attention to verses 19 through 24. John 20, verses 19 through 24, Christ coming to his disciples behind closed doors. John chapter 20, verse 19. When, therefore, it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst. And says to them, peace be unto you. And when he had said this, he showed unto them his hands and his side. The disciples therefore were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, peace be unto you as the Father has sent me even so send I you and when he had said this he breathed on them and says to them receive you the Holy Spirit whosoever sins you forgive they are forgiven unto them Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Please join me again as we bow together and pray and seek the help of the Spirit of God in the preaching and the hearing of His Holy Word. Our Father, you are acquainted with our weakness and remember that we are but dust. And on top of our frailty as humans, we are covered and filled with sin, so that we with the Apostle may confess truly within our flesh there dwells no good thing. And, O Lord, even our very best righteousnesses are in your sight as filthy rags. We have nothing to offer you this morning of our own, All that we bring, we first received from you. All we offer is what you first have given to us graciously. But we come with much need and we appeal to the God who has made yourself known to be a giving and a gracious God, that you would, in the same spirit with which your Son appeared to these, Visit us this hour in kindness and in much help from heaven. O Lord, let not those that wait upon you be disappointed because of me, but use this your servant to accomplish your will in every heart through preaching, and use your servant to glorify your name in all that he says and does. Free me, O Lord, from sin in the pulpit, from injudicious comments and free the hearer from sin in the pew and from lazy hearing. O God, search our hearts and visit us by your Holy Spirit and forbid that the devil should have a place in this place. Forbid that any should go away without the knowledge that you have been here. Come and visit us, O Lord. Be our portion in this hour and help us handle your word aright. And withhold not your free spirit from us, but freely give him because of the grace that is ours and promised to us and secured to us in the blood and righteousness of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we boldly ask these things. Amen. The Lord has been known more than once. In perhaps many people's lives to appear when they least expect Him. Which of us would survey the past of our own lives and say, The Lord has never come. He's never surprised us. He's never shown up when we didn't expect Him. Which of us would look back on our own experience and say, The only time God ever did anything for me was when I worked hard to earn it. When I labored to seek it out when I pressed upon him so vehemently that he finally had no other choice. There is the doctrine of the importunate prayer, one who continues to pray and seek the face and the help of Jehovah in spite of all sorts of apparent obstacles until he prevails with God. There is the biblical doctrine of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord and refusing to turn him loose until he receives the blessing. All night long, and that's needed for us, even in the passage we read together in Matthew earlier. The woman from the canaanite Tyre-Sidon region in the borders of Israel, who would not take no for an answer, even when she was given a strong theological reason to, con- to cease her pleadings, continued to plead with the Savior to have mercy on her household, and even overcame His Theology with his theology. She quoted to him a principle that had not yet been fully unveiled, and she stated that which only the eyes of faith could have known, and therefore prevailed upon him, even though he appeared as though he was not going to pay any attention. There is the biblical doctrine and the needed doctrine, especially in an age of laziness and self indulgence and instantism. For men and women and children to continue to plead and to approach God tenaciously and to prevail in their prayers to a gracious God who often seems to be passing by unnoticing our need. But in this text this morning, there is no such prevailing. There is no such pleading. There is no such striving. These men have no thought that the Lord is about to come. They're not asking for Him to come. They are not there because they expect a meeting with him. They have not arrived here as an appointment from Christ to meet them. There's another time in which he made an appointment with them after his resurrection to gather on a mountain and wait for him where he would gather. But this is not that time. These men have gathered for fear of the Jews, perplexed, troubled, concerned, and no doubt debating and discussing this matter of the reported resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not confident. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us that the Lord in this meeting upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. So they don't. They're, they're, this is not the picture of a gathered church with full anticipation of the blessing of God about to come on them, which ought to be the spirit with which we gather when we come to worship. But this is the picture of a few huddled disciples, scared that they are about to be arrested, perhaps even posting someone by a window, checking to see if any are coming out in the streets at night, knocking on doors to find the followers of the one that they recently have put to death. They are, for fear of the Jews, gathered with the doors shut, apparently shut and locked apparently shut so nobody can get in and so nobody will know they're in there so whatever they conduct in conversation will be private, secret and hidden they are gathered in weakness how often have you come here in weakness and not really anticipating the visit of Christ to your soul they've gathered in perplexity They're not certain about what God wants to do. They're not not certain about what He has done. They don't know where they stand with God. They don't know why exactly they're still in the world. How often have you come to this place or to the house of worship, troubled and perplexed, uncertain and confused, searching, bothered, and yet there's something in you that still wants together with the people that have followed Jesus and wants to talk about it and hopes that somehow you can find an answer to the dilemma of solving of the problem a deliverance from the imprisonment of your soul they came with weakness they came with perplexity and they had gathered I think with a measure of guilt now think back about these men what had been the recent occurrences just two days previous in the afternoon These men had been the distant witnesses of the death of their hoped-for Messiah. And just before that, they had all had a hand in forwarding his arrest and conviction. Peter denied having ever known him. Denied it three times, increasingly with vehemence. The others forsook him and fled did not want to be identified with him and captured with him and left him on his own. As he said, you will leave me alone. But I'm not alone. My Father is with me. And yet from their perspective, they didn't help. They didn't stand. They lost courage and faith. At the hour of greatest trial, they blew it. And no doubt some of them who were familiar with their Old Testament... Could remember the words of the Proverbs that said, He that shrinks back in the day of battle, his strength is small. And they were bothered men. They looked at themselves and they said, What kind of men are we? What did he ever do to us to deserve this forsaking of him? Oh, how we failed him in his hour of need. In the garden we slept. In the arrest we fled. In the cross we hid. And now here we are behind closed doors again. Two days later, we're still troubled about our survival. It's as though he never preached to them the chapters 14, 15, and 16 of this gospel. I'll not leave you orphans. I'll come to you. I'll send another comforter to you. He will abide with you. He'll give you power. He'll lead you into all truth. But see, they're still shy of that gift. They've heard the promise, but they've not felt the power. They've heard the words, but they've not experienced the reality. Here they are, hanging, (coughs) as it were, between death and heaven, and not knowing which direction to go. They denied him, they'd forsaken him, they were scared, they were concerned, they were perplexed, they were troubled, no doubt their conversation was trying to explain what had happened and whether to believe these women or not, and apparently they had not yet come to believe them. That's the occasion of this gathering. There's no intent here. This is not a fervent prayer meeting crying to God to come and visit us. This is not seeking Christ to come back and comfort our souls. They are not expecting such comfort. They are troubled. I want to open up the passage to you this morning in two ways. I want you to consider with me, the first place, the manner of this visit. We've seen in the introduction the occasion of the coming of Christ. But I want in the second place to consider with you the manner of his visit. And then in the third place, if God give us the time, the striking feature of this visit behind closed doors. First of all, consider with me the manner by which the Lord Jesus came to visit them. And I believe if we do consider the manner we will all find something to be of help to our souls. Quite frankly, I am exercised this morning both to encourage the saints of God and to call sinners to repentance. I want to bring you who are visiting among us who may not know the Lord. And if you put yourself in our place, understand how we must think. We know you're here. We know we don't know you very well, and you don't know us. We're glad you're here. Somebody probably invited you to be here, and we wanted them to invite you to be here why so we could glory in a house full of visitors i don't believe so though we are vulnerable to sin we i trust or have better motives than that do we gloat over our self-righteousness and want to show off our church to you i trust not we believe what we preach we believe what our confession says we believe we worship here together because we are convinced that the gospel we preached is the only way sinners can get to heaven, to know God and be delivered from their unrighteousness, their guilt, and their death. We believe every man and woman and child on the face of God's earth needs the Lord Jesus Christ to be a Savior. We, need, we believe that unless every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth comes to repent of sin and turn away from sin and entrusts self to Christ wholly, there can be no saving. We want you to be saved. We want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to know him the way we know him. We want you to understand his saving power and grace. We want you to go away today, not as you can. We want to call you to Christ. If we could give him to you, if we could make him put into your heart, if we could bring you to faith, if we could transact that thing, we would do it. It has not been God's will that we be entrusted with such power. We must trust Him to do it. But we're going to be courageous and bold, if we may, and appeal to you to come to Christ. And it is our desire to use this passage this morning to let you get a glimpse, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ, as perhaps you've never seen Him, and to attach yourself to the application of this sermon, and see yourself as being visited by Christ. So bear with me as I open up the manner of His visit. In the first place, the, the Savior came to this motley crew purposely. He came on purpose and with a purpose. They were not seeking him out. He sought them out. They were hiding. They were not seeking him. They were not expecting him, but he appeared. How did he know where they were? Perhaps it was a frequent gathering, perhaps not. It doesn't matter. He found them. He sought them out. What a sweet thing it is to rehearse. How many times? Not only was I not seeking the Lord, but actually hiding from Him. And He sought me out. There's not a one of us who's been redeemed who would say, who would argue with that that simple hymn. I think it's in the '90s somewhere in our hymn book. I sought the Lord, but afterward I knew it was not my seeking Him, but His seeking me. If I found the Lord, it's because the Lord sought for me. Whatever finding I did was in response to His finding. I was lost. He wasn't. And how sweet it is to think of the Lord Jesus Christ coming with a purpose to gather His disciples. You shall find me, the Scripture says, when you shall seek for me with all your heart. Scriptures also teach us that without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them who diligently seek him. If you want to find God, you're going to have to seek him diligently, and seek him with the faith that is convinced that he will reward the seeker. However oftentimes the lord is seen finding us before we seek him in fact the scripture says there is none that seeks god there is none that doeth good they are altogether gone away backward they're sick from the top of the head to the sole of the foot There is none righteous, no, not one, and yet the Lord has a company of people, a multitude innumerable throughout the world that are his disciples gladly. And how did he get them if none of them were seeking him? Because he sought them, he had a purpose, and he came when they weren't seeking. How life-changing and remarkable are those times when the Lord comes unannounced unexpectedly. I wish I had time to tell you some of my story and how many times in my own life when I, was qu- I quit praying and the Lord visited. And usually in those times they were not hard, harsh, mean visits. They were the kind of such gracious visits that it melted me. I look back on what I was before the Lord found me and saved me. He didn't come and batter me Somehow he came and amazed me by the willingness to come. The very fact that he would come when I had no interest in his coming. He came on purpose. Sometimes when the sky is the darkest, Jesus sheds light on the situation. His countenance rises upon my darkness. Sometimes when all my hope is gone, he rises with healing in his wings. I quit asking, he comes. Sometimes when I'm reading the scripture, is it not true with you? In a daily routine, sometimes we can turn that word routine into rut. I'm just doing my duty, just reading my Bible. I didn't pray much before I opened it. I didn't expect to read much. I had not seen much in weeks. I just went through the motions again. Sometimes in that simple exercise of duty, Christ comes and speaks to me. Sometimes showing up at church, maybe because my mom made me go. Maybe because a friend invited me and I was trying to be polite. In some countries they will never refuse any invitation. In the Japanese nation, I'm told that they are so concerned about saving face in the relationships that if you invite a Japanese to do something, he's very hard-pressed to turn you down. He feels it's impolite to say no. In Mexico, they're much the same way. I asked directions one time of a Mexican citizen, and he gave me gladly, quickly, directions. It was totally wrong. He had no idea where I was headed, but he would not say no or refuse me because that's undone. And I was that was explained later. I was complaining. Why did the guy? Why didn't he say I don't know? He said, "No, no, that would be impolite. You have to give an answer." Well, some people are like that. Sometimes you may have come to church because you just wanted to be polite to somebody. You may be here out of habit, or maybe down deep in the back of your mind there is a little conscience pricking you, saying, "Don't you know you need to hear God speak?" But you may not have come this morning expecting that this is the day God's going to speak to you. I don't think little Samuel went to bed that night expecting the Lord to come and visit him and talk to him. How many of you children are here this morning actually hoping that today's the day when you'll hear the voice of the Spirit of God and be truly made His own and set free from your sins? Usually we're not expecting it. But oftentimes in my experience, it's been in times when I was doing nothing To help my ears hear, the Lord visited and spoke. A text of Scripture becomes alive, and I'm stopped by it, and smitten by it, and it makes all the difference in the rest of the day, and sometimes in the rest of my life. I'd say in my case, probably more often than not, it's when I wasn't seeking diligently that God turned things around for me. Blessed the man or woman, the boy or the girl, Whom the Lord chooses and causes to draw near to him. Oh, what a sweet spirit and what a sweet experience it was for Samuel to have the Lord search him out in his youth before he even had time to know he was supposed to search out the Lord. In the daily routines of being a servant in the temple, lying down to bed, ready to close his eyes and sleep, the Lord had other plans. May we parents beg God to introduce himself to our children and speak to their hearts may you never grow weary in pleading with God and no doubt oftentimes the lord's surprising visits to us are indirect answer to the prayers of somebody else so you don't know who else was praying when you weren't you may be astonished i wasn't even asking and the lord came somebody may have been asking but that's the lord he came purposely he came on purpose. Let me suggest a bit of his purpose this day. I think that I don't have time so to fulfill the scriptural doctrine that I could prove some of these things to you without question, but I hope that in some of your minds you're not convinced, at least the suggestion will get you thinking. I think in the first place he came on purpose this time in order to own his day. This is the only day of the week that in the New Testament is ever specified by number. The first day of the week. There's not even a month or a year ever specified by number in the New Testament. The only calendar date in the New Testament ever specified by number is the first day of the week. And here he comes. And John is careful to tell us it was that same day, that same day same day when all these other things have happened that we've been considering the first of the week at evening this is after he had appeared to the men going to Emmaus and in their home at Emmaus opened up their hearts to receive the scripture disappeared from them they hurried back to town and got there no doubt after dark but later that evening and then they're gathered, they're telling the apostles what they've seen, they're reporting the resurrection, they're all troubled, and he comes the first day of the week. He comes to own his day. Psalm 118, verse 24, the hymn that the apostles and the Lord, no doubt, are at least perhaps and probably were singing when they went out at the Lord's Supper, out toward the brook Kidron, says, this is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. If you're familiar with that text and its context, you know that that is a statement in the context of the declaration of the stone which the builders rejected, the Lord has made the head of the corner. Speaking of Christ, who was rejected by the leaders of Israel, the builders of the temple of God, those builders of the house rejected God's stone, this little insignificant stone in their eyes, God has made him the chief cornerstone of God's temple, that God is building and not man. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And the scriptures are careful to point out to us that by and large the nation of Israel turned away the true builder so they could build their own temple on their own terms. They gloried in the stones of their own making. But they rejected the stone of God's making. And what day did the Lord declare openly that this was the chief cornerstone? It was in the morning of the resurrection. In the event of raising his son from the dead, he fulfilled the passage of Scripture saying, This day have I begotten thee. Sit here at my footstool till I make thine enemies the footstool of your feet. Uh, Sit here at my throne until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. The Lord raised him from the dead and fulfilled the prophecy of his making his Son glorious Messiah on the throne. This Jesus whom you crucified, Peter says, God has raised up and seated at his right hand. And it is from there that he sent this Spirit which you see and hear. We read in Acts chapter 2. He came this night, I believe, at least partly, in order to honor and to own the first day of the week as the proper day for his people together in honor of the resurrected Lord. He appeared to Mary Magdalene on the first day of the week, to the other women, to the two Emmaus disciples, to Simon Peter, we read in Luke 24, and to these ten, we believe, ten called the twelve gathered this night. I believe it's very probable that Peter and Thomas were not there because they report to these twelve that the Lord has appeared to Simon. Simon's not there to tell that yet. But the feature here is that they report to the twelve that are now numbered officially eleven and probably only ten of which, or nine of which I suppose, I may miscount, were present at this meeting. Why? All on the first day of the week. He appeared again the following Lord's Day to the eleven gathered when Thomas was with them. And he sent his Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the first day of the week, and baptized the church on the first day of the week with the Spirit. Why? Why? We believe because he wanted to own his day and set apart the first day of the week as the perpetual day of the gathering of disciples of Christ in which they have extra confidence that he will meet with his two or three who are gathered together in his name. But the second purpose that I would suggest to you that he came this night was to honor the solemn assembly of his people remember, these guys aren't gathered with all the noblest motives in the world. And yet he comes and owns this gathering, appears to them corporately. The Bible tells us to forsake not the gathering of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. It is a sin for you not to come to church regularly. It is wrong of you not to gather with the people of God on the Lord's day and worship Him. That's a high sin against the fourth commandment. You've been sinning by skipping church. If you've not been delighting in the worship of God in His day and not loving the fellowship of His people and lifting your voice with the congregation when they sing praises to God, you're walking out of step not only with them but with the Lord Himself. He came to honor the assembling of His people. What higher honor could there be in a gathered assembly than for Jesus to appear in the midst? Think about this. Back up and think about it. Jesus stood in the midst. Oh, could we wish for that to happen every time we come. In fact, if that doesn't happen, I'd rather not come. Who wants to go through the exercises of religion to miss the only day off you have in the week in order to come to a place to play church and not have the Lord visit You say, well, that's the problem, Pastor. That's why I haven't been going to church, because I don't see any God there. I go, and it's dull, and people are bored, and they sleep, and they talk, and the kids throw spit wads, and they get up and walk in and out. There's no respect for anything, and it's because it's probably not real. And I know the way they live in that church. They're hypocrites. They preach one thing and live another. Why should I go to church? Well, I admit that if that's the only kind of church you've you've ever been to, I sympathize with you. On the other hand, you must remember that it was the Lord's habit every Sabbath day to go to the synagogues and partake in their services even though they were filled with hypocrisy and filled with sinners and filled with some things that no doubt were out of order. Be careful. And also make sure that you don't let the hypocrite stand closer to God than you are. And that's where he is if he's between you and God. The Lord came to honor the solemn assembly of His people. But I think in the third place, briefly, we could say not only to own His day and to honor the assembly of His people, but to honor and to establish the standing ministry of His church. Where'd you get that? Because in this hour, He said... As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And he breathed on them the Holy Spirit, said, Receive you the Holy Spirit. It's the same kind of parallel passage in which in another text he has said, I am with you always to the end of the world. You go. I have all authority. You preach. To every creature you have the authority of Christ on the throne to declare to men their sins and their Savior, to call them to repentance and preach faith and the remission of sin. He established the standing ministry in his church this night, formally. Now, there's something I need to talk about before we move to the second manner of his coming. (coughs) Notice in verse 22, when he breathes on them and says, Receive you the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say in the next verse, Whosoever sins you forgive or remit, They are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they retain. What in the world did he give to these men when he said that? What kind of power is that? One would be tempted to pass over this and not address it for fear of not understanding it. And it is perplexing. And in church history, it has created tremendous argument. There's one great leading so-called Christian movement, the largest in the world, That claims that this gives the right of the leaders of the church the power to give absolution to men from sin whenever they will. And they believe that this is the text, or one of the texts, that gives them the authority to say, I forgive your sins, I don't forgive your sins. And actually to tell them the various activities they can perform that when approved by those leaders, they can then be granted forgiveness. In church history, that same movement has also been known to sell indulgences ahead of time so that people could have a few sins they could commit without being guilty if they would pay the priest up front. That's what indulgences were. It was the privilege to sin by giving this little ticket. You get a little ticket and it says, okay, now you've paid this much, you can sin this much, and there's no problem, we'll let you go. Did you know that? It was that kind of thing that got Martin Luther's dander up and... Sent for ninety-five theses onto the Wittenberg door. Some of you say, "Well, yeah, but it's all changed since then." Oh, dear brethren! Men all over the world this morning think they're buying God off, because men, as long as they can get their money, will give them free consciences. I submit to you that is not at all what the Lord was granting to them. Those men, we could consider this power to remit sins under two categories. Perhaps it could mean authoritative power, meaning whatever you decide, whatever you say, you have final authority to forgive sin and to retain sin, not to forgive it. But That's not what I believe he says nor means in this passage, because the Bible would be contradicted if that's the case. Text after text in the Scripture defies that kind of logic. But the other kind of meaning that could be attached to this, and I believe is the proper one, is ministerial authority, or to forgive sins representatively. And what do we mean by that? Well, we mean what the Lord meant in Matthew 16, when he said to Peter, to you are given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Because in Revelation, Jesus Christ says, I have the keys of death and hell, and he has the keys of heaven. How can he give it to the apostles? Well, the point made was that when Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and preached the gospel of Christ to a multitude of Jews from every nation under heaven, he opened the kingdom of heaven to their hearts and to their souls. And thousands of them entered... Upon the opening of the key of the gospel by Simon Peter, standing for the apostles. And then in the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, the first official Gentile believer in the New Testament, Peter preached the gospel and opened the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to read the Bible very carefully to see the overwhelming testimony and strength of the argument that the kind of authority Christ gave the apostles... Was not absolute authoritative power to grant forgiveness to whom they personally would, but the authority to promise forgiveness upon the terms of the gospel and to declare such with authority in the name of Christ. So that we, in the Apostles' Doctrine this morning, are able to say to you poor sinners, You come to Christ, you believe the message of the Scriptures about Jesus Christ who was buried. After being put to death for your sin, raised from the dead, put into heaven by His Father, ruling over us and over the whole world from the throne of God, you submit to Christ with your conscience and your heart. You recognize your sinfulness and ill desert. You come repentant and willing to turn from your sin. You come entrusting your whole life to Him, believing on Him as the only and sufficient Savior for sinners. God will forgive your sins. And we're able to declare to men through the waters of baptism that when they come to Christ and show evidence that their hearts have been turned to Him and separated from their sins, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. That's the kind of authority that the Lord gave to apostles and the church under them. Not absolute authority. Authority, but gospel authority. That's the significance of this commission. So the Lord came purposely to own his day, to honor the solemn assembly of his disciples, to honor and to establish the standing ministry. Even so send I you dealing with the sins of men with authority as they believe the gospel you preach to pronounce upon them forgiveness. Or if they reject it, you can shake the dust off and retain their sins. But in the second place, the manner of Christ's coming is not only purposeful, but a little more briefly, merciful. These were unworthy disciples, unseeking disciples. It's good to know that the Lord Jesus doesn't give up easily on sinners. Some who are sitting in this place have already this morning checked the clock. Wondering how, how long you're going to have to endure. Words from men. You've not come with a broken heart. You've not come understanding what a dire strait you're in. It has not occurred to your conscience yet that you're in great trouble with God. And that you must get right with God. That a judgment day is coming soon. That leaves a war in the Middle East. Into, paled into, into insignificance when the Lord comes and declares war against those who've turned away from Him there'll be no escape there's no technology that can deliver us in that day there's no amount of heaped up good works that we can bring to secure His grace in that hour why does the Lord not just snuff you out then with such an attitude as that with such a presumption as that with such a high pride as that Why doesn't he just rid himself of you? Why did he allow the world to stand till this hour? When he looked at the world in Noah's day, and every imagination of the thoughts of the heart were only evil continually. And he said, I will not always strive with man, yet the number of his days will be 120 years. When the Lord saw the earth filled with violence, he gave man 120 years to repent said a preacher of righteousness, built an ark. 120 years when there was nothing but wickedness in every heart. He's a gracious God. He deals mercifully. Do not presume that because God has not destroyed you yet, it is because he's soft on sin. You are despising the goodness of God. Because the Bible says that the goodness of God is leading you to repentance. The reason he's merciful is so you'll have opportunity to repent, not because he accepts what you are, not because he has no intention of judging you at the last, but in order to give you an ample opportunity to repent, and partly so that in the day that he does judge the unrepentant, none can claim that he was unmerciful in doing so. The Lord came mercifully to a bunch of fearful, guilty sinners, And you see, it's helpful to you to know this. Have you blown it? I mean, have you blown it with God? Have you done what Bunyan did? Blasphemed God? Did you ever get mad at God and just stomp off and say, It's finished with me, forget it? In different ways, different people have done so without putting, putting, putting words to it. Some of you have defied what your mom and dad taught you. And you finally went out and you crawled into the filthy shack with somebody that you knew was wrong. Some of you put junk in your bodies you knew God hated. Some of you have submitted your body to addiction to different chemicals that you knew God was against, your conscience told you, if not your Bible. And some of you have resisted when God's attempted to put you right and to get your attention and to call you to repentance. People have invited you to church and you put them away. Some of you have done things we would not mention particularly. might embarrass you too much. Things that you know. And my having said that general thing was enough to get your conscience to think back on how vile. And you look at it and you say, you know, for all practical purposes, that kind of behavior... Was unforgivable you've blown it but you see as long as you have the will to repent there's hope the lord jesus is merciful and until you have so crusted your heart and hardened your heart that god finally is able with righteousness to say give him up he's joined to his idols Or until the judgment day comes after which there will be no more change. As long as you still have the opportunity and the will to repent, there's hope. Because God is merciful. Now do I say that to tell you no urgency? Take your time? God's patient? My dear friend, he's already been way past patient with you. You have no more time. Don't you see that? You have no more time. He said, well, I've gotten by so far. I'll think about it. Oh, my dear friend, I plead with you to consider the parable of the rich man who said he would build his barns greater because he had plenty of goods stored up for the future and he had no more need to work and he would eat and drink and be merry. And the Lord said, thou fool, don't you not this night your soul will be declared required of you it's not infrequent that we stand in this sacred desk and are aware that you may. this may be the last time we ever address your conscience I wonder who among us this morning may not hear the gospel again you say that's theatrics you're trying to scare us if I could scare you to Christ I would do it I ask you what harm could it do For you to get scared that you may die tonight and run now to God and desperately cling to Christ and get saved. And next week come here unafraid. What harm have I done you if I manipulate that into you? May God give us grace to see that the Lord Jesus comes mercifully to his people. You ever been here when the Lord shouldn't come because of the way you conducted yourself Saturday night and Sunday morning? your argument with your wife or husband on the way to church that quenched the spirit and grieved him, your attitude towards preaching, your attitude towards the church, your attitude towards God, and you show up here and you know you have a need, but the way you've been treating him, perhaps you haven't opened the Bible in a week. You ever been here like that? And you know, some of our tendency is, if it's that way, we say, well, I can't get a blessing today, I'm not even going to ask until next week when I've had a chance to make it up to God again. I'm going to open the Bible Monday and I'll be better this week. Next week I can ask. Don't you know that's missing it? The Lord came mercifully to these men. He did not look back on Friday and say, Now you know that tonight's going to be slim pickings for you in blessing category because of how you've been acting. You guys don't deserve anything. I'm just here to remind you of that. That's not the spirit with which you came. He did upbraid them for their unbelief, but that wasn't the tone and final mark of his statement. came mercifully to a bunch of undeserving gathered disciples. Third, he came irresistibly. On the surface of the passage, the doors were shut. And there was Jesus standing in the midst. I won't even enter into the debate on what happened. I don't know if he materialized in the room, walked through the closed doors, or opened them quietly and closed them, and nobody noticed until he was standing in the midst. I'm not going to debate it. The text doesn't tell us. I have no problem with him showing up, supernaturally. I think I noticed him disappearing from Emmaus a few hours back, supernaturally. I think I noticed Philip disappearing from Samaria and showing up down on the Gaza Strip, like that, one time, a few years after this. I'm not troubled by this. I have no problem. The point here is, though, that nothing can keep Jesus out when he intends to come. Not your fears, not your guilt, not your enemies. The Jews are looking for these guys. It's very unlikely the Lord's going to risk himself and them. I mean from their perspective, no, see that's the point. From their perspective, he's not going to be here tonight. No doubt he's hiding. They don't first they're not sure he's risen, but if he is, it probably hasn't occurred to their theological thinking yet that he's out of danger. When the assemblies of God gather together, when the church of Christ gathers together, nothing can keep the Lord out of there. Sometimes they gather secretly for fear. Dear brethren, churches all over this world have had to gather in catacombs and caves and dens of the earth. The Lord did not stay out. The only thing that can keep Christ out of a church is disobedience on the part of that church. A church does what God says to do and gathers in His name. He'll come. And the world can't keep Him out. May we lose everything but Him. I tremble to think that we ever put up bricks over on a piece of land across the river and have the Lord not move with us over there. I tremble to think that we might have a prospering church and not a God in the midst of us. Except our own love of the world. Persecuted church doesn't keep Christ out. A disobedient church keeps him out. There are no clouds of conscience that can keep the Lord from visiting his people when he wants to. Adam hid in the garden from him and the Lord found him. Replaced his old man-made fig leaves with the skins of slain animals. Covered his guilt and shame. So he could live again and face the world, even though there was the fall and the deadly reminders of it. No fears can keep the Lord Jesus out. You're afraid of the penalties of justice upon your guilty conscience. Adam was, and all Adam knew was death. Remember, you read back, when Adam was hiding, he had not yet heard of redemption. All he had heard was, when you eat, you're dead. And now he's ashamed... And no doubt afraid, and the Lord visits. And then he announces something else to it. After announcing the curse, he announces the one who will come to remove the curse. You see, you have a lot more going for you than Adam did that afternoon. You don't have to hide from God in the fear that there's no redemption available to wretched sinners. You have the full revelation that the Lord Jesus has died in your place. You've heard more than the penalty. You've seen the provision. Historically provided, he was raised from the dead. And so you're able to come to Christ. And your fears can't keep him out. No weakness can bar the Lord Jesus from coming to his people. Do you desire his coming to you? Do you want a visit from Christ? Would you like for him to move in? And abide with you? Are you willing to accommodate him? He has some things that have to be provided for him when he comes. There's a certain kind of house he's willing to live in. He has rules by which the house is going to have to live if he's going to live there. you ready to adjust your life to his will? Don't play games with God. Don't talk about receiving him as your Savior if you have no intention of turning your back on the sins that have offended him. But you say, Pastor, I don't want anything that will keep Jesus out of my life. I don't want to hold on to anything that will bar me from the grace of Christ. I'm tired of my sin. It's true, the way of the transgressor is hard, Pastor. I've tried sin and it doesn't work. I'm frustrated with it. I know God's against me. I want to get right with God. Is there a chance for me? If the Lord Jesus can put me right with God, I'll take him on his terms, if that's your spirit. If you'll receive him as he is. He'll come. He's merciful. And he comes irresistibly. You say, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. I don't have to know. He knows. And he knew when he died. He knew what those thieves had done. And for one of them, his death was saving. He knows everything you've done. And he invites you to come to himself. I have never read a passage. In the whole Bible, in which the Lord Jesus, God the Father, or God the Spirit has ever said, Oh, come, unless you've done this particular thing. There's one sin you better not come and ask your forgiveness for. You say, what about the unpardonable sin? I won't take the time to explain it. I'm simply saying to you that that is not what you may think it is. What you're thinking of this morning, you wouldn't be here if you had committed the unpardonable sin. You wouldn't be hurting over your sin. You wouldn't be wishing that what I'm saying were true and hoping perhaps that the Lord Jesus is real if you'd committed the unpardonable sin. Is it abortion? Is it paying for some girl's abortion so you wouldn't get caught? Is it suggesting to a girl she get an abortion so you don't get caught? We've got a culture full of that kind of sin. Is it sexual perversion? You're ashamed? You don't want anybody to find out you've been living a double life? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, when it speaks to a group of saints who have been redeemed, washed by the blood of Christ, and sanctified by the Spirit, it lists those kinds of sins and says, such were some of you. The Lord Jesus saves sinners. In fact, it's a glory to His grace that He saves the worst kind. He saves the best kind, and He saves the worst kind. You can't bar Christ. He saves irresistibly, and no sin keeps Him out, unless it's unrepented sin. He comes irresistibly. But fourth, He came graciously. You say, I thought you already said that. No, I said mercifully. And there's a technical difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is when the Lord doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace is when he gives us what we don't deserve. You see the difference? Mercy is when we deserve God's wrath and he doesn't stick us with it. He waits. He gives us time. He is patient. He's long-suffering. Grace is when we deserve nothing and God gives it. Mercy is when we deserve something and we don't get it. The wrath of God. Grace is when we deserve nothing, the blessing of God, and we do get it. He came graciously. You say, where in does the text tell us that? He said to them twice, Peace be to you. And I'm glad he said it twice because it it confirms my interpretation of the passage that this common phrase, Peace be to you, meant more that hour than it usually means. And he said it the second time in order to drive that home. This is not just my how you doing, guys. See, this was the what everybody said that. Peace be to you. Peace. That was a greeting. Hello, how you doing? But when he said it this night, it was chock full of significance to those men. Peace to you. I'm sending you on a mission because there's no cloud between us. Your sins are gone. The offense between you and God is taken care of. There's no more enmity, no condemnation. You guys trembling for conscience. Peace. He came graciously. He comforted their fears. See, see what it says when he showed them his hands and his side. They were glad when they saw the Lord. Oh, it is the Lord. I see the wounds. I know this is the one that died. Oh, how glad they were. No more fear. They first thought he might be a ghost and they were scared. But why would you be afraid of a ghost? One author says that the reason people are scared of ghosts is because their conscience somehow gets them when they think of something strange from the next world. It immediately scares them because they expect that all dealings with the next world are going to be bad. So you ought not be afraid of the next world. And when you have peace with God, you're not. A ghost shows up, what's that do to you? He's from the, he's from the other world. Well, what dangers the other world to those that are in Christ and have eternal life? Shake it off and move on. The Lord says, look at my hands and my side. They look and he comforted their fears. Peace I give to you, he told them, not as the world gives. We're not talking about absence of difficulty, conflict and problems. But we are talking about relations with God that no longer possess the same, the the enmity and the condemnation and the fearfulness that they once did. That's the gospel. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. None. Do you understand that outside of Christ Jesus you are nothing but condemned by God? Have you gotten that settled? This is not osmosis. You don't just sort of drift from one sort of mindset and then join up with a nice church and sort of change your life a little. These things are tantamount to the ultimate issues of our life. God is against the sinner. He's angry with the wicked every day, the Psalms tell us. What does the wicked do? He's condemned by God, the just one. What does he do? He runs and hides in Christ, the ark of God. He shuts the door to himself in Christ and the floods of God's wrath cannot touch him or harm him. He runs to Jesus, the rock and the deliverer of his soul and he runs into the high tower which is the Lord Jesus Christ and he's safe there. Those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation to you. The Lord Jesus came to them graciously. He comes to all believers graciously. God is reconciled to you if you're in Christ. God is not your enemy if you're in Christ. The Lord Jesus came that night intending to do good to these men. And I say to you that by the gospel that I'm preaching to you, that he's come this morning intending to do good for you. Christ is not wishing ill upon you. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he would turn and be and live. The Lord Jesus will put you to death in hell forever if you don't turn. And He'll be perfectly just when He does it. But He does not delight to do it. He does not desire the death of the wicked. That's why He says to you, not only to us, to whom He confirms that we're at peace with God because we believed on the Lord Jesus, but to you who have not sealed that yet, He offers peace. Oh, dear friend. Don't you know that for the taking of Christ, for the calling upon the name of the Lord in humble recognition of your ill-desert in His grace, for the casting of yourself totally on Christ, God will put it right with you? For good? Completely? Forever? Until that occurs, you're not right, and God is against you, and His wrath is on your head. But whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I warn you, there's peace no place else. There's no other place you can find peace with God except in his Son. And I plead with you, I command you in the name of Christ the Lord, make your peace with God now. Be ye reconciled to God. We plead with you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. What hinders you? Do you not fear the flames to come? Are you in control of your destiny? Are you God? Are you stronger than God? Would you provoke God to envy and jealousy and anger? What hinders you to come? Is there something about being right with your Creator that offends you? Is there a collection of His blessing that you would rather not have? Have you come upon a trinket in this world that surpasses in value the blessing of Christ? What have you done? Let me reason in these closing moments with you. What have you done and experienced in your life that makes Jesus dispensable to your soul? What have you gained? What are you about to gain? What do you think you may gain that will make Jesus unneeded? What can satisfy your soul that you've tasted so far in this world? Be honest with yourself. Anything you ever laid your eyes on and lusted after that can satisfy the soul? It hasn't yet, has it? Let me call to witness a room full of people who have tasted that the Lord is good and would stand as one and say, He satisfies the soul. And for many of them, they would say quickly, there was a time I had some other things that made this decision critical and difficult for me, but I would not for one moment go back and trade places with what I had and what I was about to get and what I wanted. I now see it for what it was. It was nothing more than dust. Some of us are not naive little Christians here that grew up believing all this stuff. Some of us grew up hating this stuff. Some of us had parents teaching us never come to a church like this. Some of us in this room were told by our priests, don't ever go to that church. Some were told by evangelicals, don't ever come to this church. We're not here because we were born prejudiced in favor of these things. We were born sinners. We're here because the Lord Jesus Christ came and visited us. He visited us purposely. He visited us mercifully, irresistibly, and graciously. And he called us to himself and made us his own. Oh yes, we're glad to be here today. We're not apologetic for this. We wouldn't go back. God help us never go back. We, but we want you to know that we're not sterile people here. We're not folks that never tried sin. We're not people who showed up at this place having never had some of the pleasures you've tasted. We've got it all here, folks. We've had it all. We've tasted it all. And we've gladly left it all. Why? Because we've met another who satisfies the soul. We have been made partakers of bread from which we will never hunger again. We have tasted water which has quenched our soul's thirst. We do not make this up, nor would we lie to you. We would warn you, do not turn away the bread of life and turn away from the water of life. We would plead with you not to fight your conscience and survive this morning's preaching and get home safe, because you're not safe. It's not us you're dealing with, it's God you're dealing with. God will not leave you alone He will pursue you and if you do not turn he will come one day and crush you under the load of his wrath. But if you run to Jesus God will free you from your sins the way he's freed us. He'll make you his own and then you'll be able with these disciples to look at the Lord and be glad. Have you seen the Lord? Have you seen the wounds? As though they were inflicted for your sins? Have you been able to learn to look to Christ and say, There is the punishment for my sin. There is God's wrath inflicted against Him in my place. Oh, blessed Savior, I love you for what you've done for me. I'll never leave you by your grace for what you've done for me. Have you come to that? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ for how He's loved you? If you have not, make that transaction this morning. Turn from your sin. Bow humbly before Christ and call upon his name. And make, make his claims your claims. Lay hold upon salvation in the person of God's Son. And then declare it publicly in baptism and join with his church. And stand with us to proclaim Christ to the world. May God have mercy on us that we may lay hold. O oh dear brethren... Let us pray that God will turn hearts to himself. We are wrestling against powers beyond us. Nothing short of the power of God will save the sinner. Bow with me as we ask God to give power. Our fathers, certainly, if we were to microscopically inspect the delivery of this sermon, we could find much fault with it and perhaps not even with a microscope. But we again have delivered through the feet of clay that treasure which you have deposited in earthen vessels, and we entrust it to you and to your power. And we plead with you, our God and our Savior, that you may take the feeble offerings of a sinful man and make them the portion of other sinful men and women. And make them your own. O Lord, visit us this hour in saving grace and mercy. O open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. Be compassionate upon the lame who are not able to raise themselves off their spiritual beds to come to you. Come and visit them. Raise them up, O Lord. Speak the word of peace to their souls and make them one with the company of the redeemed. Our God and Father, we're so accustomed to praying these things. But often we pray them as a matter of course and do not believe them. Help us believe them. Hear our prayers, O God, and incline your ear to us who don't deserve anything from you and answer us and do it remarkably for your glory and for your namesake. Magnify the name of Christ in the gospel by saving sinners and comforting the saints who have gathered in Jesus' name. O Lord, let them hear peace unto you, and find full assurance of your saving grace to them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.